and welcome to Pedagodzilla, the pedagogic podcast with the pop culture core. This week, school's out forever as we answer the question, how does problem-based learning help Buffy the Vampire Slayer? So to answer that question, uh, I'm Mike, I'm a learning designer with The Open University and a bloke with a microphone, and joining me today we have... I'm Mark, and I'm a regular on this, and my usual claim to fame is having a PhD in education, but that doesn't single me out this time. And joining us today, we have a very special guest. It's Rebecca Ferguson. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, I'm Rebecca. Uh, yes, like Mark, I have a PhD in educational technology. In fact, uh, Mark and I have very similar educational backgrounds, but he's better at physics and I'm probably better at English literature than him. Um, and Rebecca, you're because um, we've got a recording coming up quite shortly, actually, where we're talking about the Innovating Pedagogy Report. You're a, a prime innovating pedagogier in that. Am I correct? That is true. I'm Rebecca, the innovator of pedagogies. Um, <laughs> there's my tagline for you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I used to be lead editor on the Innovating Pedagogy Report for a couple of years, and I've been involved in writing it right since the beginning, back in 2012, yes. So I've written about loads and loads of innovative pedagogies. Recently, I've been thinking about how you apply them in the time of COVID-19. Hmm. So are we, are we going to get a, a top-up Innovating Pedagogy Report perhaps coming out in the next few months? Uh, there were 10 help sheets came out last week. So Amazing. Okay, we'll include some links to those in the show notes. Yeah, if you go to the website, they're all there. Fantastico. Okay, so to answer our question, how does problem-based learning help Buffy the Vampire Slayer, we're first going to have to break it down into its constituent components. What the hell is problem-based learning? And who's Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Part one, the question. So, Buffy's a bit more fun. Should we talk about Buffy first? Who wants to start? Yeah, hmm. Mark, hasn't, Mark hasn't watched Buffy, so... Yes, this is, this is unusual where I am more geeky than Mark. <laughs> <laughs> this is the one time in my life. I've kind of held off from watching it more recently because I figure it's really nice to have that one area where I'm completely going, oh, really? And like, you know, like the usual blank look when I talk about anything to do with Star Wars or Star Trek <laughs> or anything like that. And then I can do it back when Buffy crops up. That's so novel. I don't want to destroy that particularly, but I have been reading up a bit for this podcast really so yeah so i can't chip in i got, I got into buffy uh like way back in season one when it first aired in the uk and i thought it was the best thing ever it's just for those who, who don't know it's uh, sarah michelle geller who was my teenage heartthrob being a high school girl in sunnydale high a classic american high school which just so happens to sit over the top of the Hellmouth which is where all demons and vampires and things come from. And she slays vampires all day while simultaneously trying to be an everyday teenager and have pals and relationships and things. And it's a Joss Whedon thing. And it's wonderful and funny and, and witty and, and silly and great. And it's, oh, it's gorgeous. Yeah. And it's got two sort of big underpinning ideas, I'd say. You know, one of the things that Joss Whedon said about it was, I wanted to see where the petite blonde went into the dark alley with the big bad. And then she kicked its ass. <laughs> and I, I really like that idea of just inverting everything that you expect, uh, because I must say that the first time I watched Buffy, you know, I just happened to have the television on and this young blonde girl goes into a graveyard and I'm thinking, oh, shit, this is just so stereotyped. <laughs> and then she thinks it gets out and I thought, wow, what happened there? Um, I've got to watch this. So I like that. And also there's this underlying metaphor, certainly for the first three series of high school is hell. Mm. And, and just exploring what that would mean if that were literally true. 
And you're not wrong, actually, because I, I remember um, definitely during the, the first couple of episodes, some of the worst and hardest to watch moments in it aren't when you've got a vampire threatening to um, eat somebody or, you know, her engaged in mortal combat. It's when you've got, like, the nasty schoolgirls being unpleasant and snide. Like, yeah. that was the stuff that really, t- like, ooh, made me shudder. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's one episode where there's a girl who is invisible and you know, really vindictive and nasty, but you find out that it's because she's gone invisible because she's just been ignored all her life. And whenever she's approached other people, they've just um, ignored her or turned away. They haven't really heard her in the classroom. And I think that's, that's an experience that so many people have had of feeling on the outside, feeling ignored, and it just takes it one step further. Hmm. And, and there's so many things that take it one step, or, or probably ten steps further. To be fair, <laughs> kind of ahead of its time as well. It feels like that um, the opening of that big wave of sort of postmodern um, '90s telly, where you had kind of the monster of the week, but also the big overarching plots joining things together across seasons. Yes, so there's so many story arcs going on across Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and so many things that you have to tie up in each series finale. It, it's really impressive. Mm. And, and isn't there a bit towards, I think, the end of the fifth or sixth season, talking about the postmodernism thing, there's a huge arc where she dies and comes back. And you'd think at that point, any TV show would have jumped the shark. And then don't they have a shark monster that they have to overcome? And isn't that kind of like a bit self-referential about yes. making a TV show? That sounded really clever. That that was the point where I thought, oh, I should be watching this. Well, they did a load of that high concept stuff. They did, um, if I remember, it was like a musical episode or something. And it was amazing. Yeah, that is sort of consistently rated as one of the best episodes because in the songs, everybody is sort of forced into revealing what their inner thoughts are and all the things <laughs> that they wouldn't, they wouldn't have told people and that they've been hiding from other people. And it comes out in the song. So it's, it's a really revealing episode. And it tells you quite a lot about how musicals work as well as about what's happening <laughs> with the characters. Yeah, it's the thing you never really consider. It's like, this is my inner monologue for everyone to hear. <laughs> just some sort yeah. of I t- God bless Joss Whedon. God bless him. And it is one of the, the, the sort of things that they have to find a way out of. It's not that everyone goes, oh, isn't this a beautiful, lovely world where we're all singing to each other all the time? It's like, no, this is a nasty, hellish thing and we have to stop it as soon as possible. Mm. <laughs> so I think the, the big thing about um, Buffy, kind of the angle of the show, is, as I said, it's sort of a monster of the week format in some regards in that each episode um, in addition to obviously sort of the big uh, series wide arcs and things you have a new inciting incident you've got something weird and wonderful happening it's a strange happening in sunnydale it's a new mysterious character appearing it's people disappearing or turning up in bits on the lawn or something and that's kind of like that's sort of the general format for the show and then buffy and her pals xander and willow who are her two her two friends and the Watcher, uh, who's also the librarian, Giles, all sort of work together and go through the library and have a chat and then have some secondary plot, which also gives a revelation, uh, which lets them understand how to defeat the monster. That's kind of the, the general show format, isn't it? Yeah, but I think that sort of takes us into how this intersects with education and learning, because I reckon there's sort of, you know, obviously foregrounded in Buffy is, is the fact that she's at high school. And so obviously there's that sort of formal learning going on. in, in But that's pretty much in the background. I, I mean, it drives some of the storylines. Something will happen in class and, and they'll take that a bit further. 
there's also the learning that's going on, all the stuff that goes on in the background at high school, which is, you know, as a teenager, probably much more important to your life. All that learning about sex and drugs and rock and roll and how relationships work and how you negotiate stuff with your family. So there's all that learning going on. But there's there's also a couple of other things going on. So there's one slayer in every generation. And and when they say one slayer in every generation, that's that's a bit of a an overstatement because slayers are to some extent ex- disposable because as soon as you get rid of one slayer, another slayer pops up somewhere in the world. So while that's a tragedy for the one slayer, in terms of the world, there's always one going on. Um, <laughs> and um, we see this play out over, over the, the whole eight series of Buffy. But in the background, there is this council of watchers and they're sort of the handlers for the Slayers because the Slayers are young teenage girls. It's, it's usually just sprung on them out of the blue. You know, one day they're a normal teenage girl and the next day they've got sort of superhuman powers and superhuman skills and all these demons start turning up, which is a bit difficult to handle. And in the background are the Watchers Council who are sort of keeping an eye on the Slayers. There's one Watcher assigned to each Slayer. So Buffy has Giles, the librarian. And uh, they've got this vast repository of knowledge. So they represent one sort of approach to education, that we've got all the stuff in the books. Um, We've got all these people who have been learning this stuff for ages. All all the watchers that we see, I think, pretty much are British, you know, which is, is you know, a stereotype in America of they're sort of knowledgeable. They're a bit formal. They're a little bit evil some of the time. And they all fit in with that. Well, and that's also where Joss Whedon did his undergraduate studies, wasn't it? In yeah. Winchester. So he's yeah. probably got that influence as well. Exactly. And he really draws on that, I think. So, I mean, one of the things about Watchers Council is, yes, there is there is value there. They've got all this huge repository of knowledge. But the way that they play it out is like oh we are the wise ones we will share our knowledge with the slayer and there is one episode where they impose this absolutely pointless test on buffy which nearly oh yes she like she like nearly dies in it doesn't she she nearly dies in it and you're thinking oh well there is some sort of parallel there to you know the pressure of examination assessment yeah meaningless assessment which um really damages the health of of the students who are engaged in that process so there's that sort of meditation on things going on in the background and then of course there's all the things that buffy has to learn as she's faced with a different demon every week a different problem every week Mm. so that's the fourth sort of learning all going on Mm. at the same time so, I mean, this is probably a good point to start talking about um, problem-based learning then. Yeah. So, problem-based learning, switching into pedagogy mode, um, <laughs> <laughs> is an approach to learning which was uh, developed in the 1960s um, in medical schools in the 1960s. And it was a response to the fact that students would, would learn all the facts they'd endeavour to learn all the facts. But then when you got them out into the real world, you got them with patients, they couldn't necessarily apply what they'd learnt. So it seemed like some sort of more practice-based approach to learning was needed. And uh, they came up with problem-based learning. So problem-based learning is a series of steps, 
what you can set it out as a series of steps if you want to implement it, which take you from here is a problem to let's all work together as learners, let's consult with our lecturer, and then let's come up with a solution in the end. So it's very focused on authentic situations. Um, It's very focused on applying the knowledge you've got, working out what sort of knowledge you need. And it's also to do with with teamwork. So you don't really Hmm. do problem-based learning as an individual. You do problem-based learning as a group. And of course, that's what you do most of the time in in life. You're you're working in a team or you're living with a family or you're always in a group um, when you take on problems that you've got to solve. And and the teacher's role in problem-based learning is a little different. Um, some of the stuff I saw used the ever so slightly, I don't want to say wanky term, but of um, the, the guide on the fa- facilitator oh. of learning. Oh, guide on the side is always a good one. Yes. yes. Yeah. But the fas- fas- yeah, look at me as a facilitator. Yes. No, guide, guide on the side is, is much cooler. I feel yeah. much, much more comfortable with, with the concept. But yeah, so the, the idea is that they are there to kind of support them through the process. But also it's about sort of prompting and asking questions, isn't it, to make sort of to, to progress the learning. Yeah. So so and and you can see Buffy through that lens. But actually since since saying oh Buffy puts um puts problem based learning into practice, I've decided that actually that's not quite the case because problem based learning is very much a classroom based pedagogy. So the problem that is set is I mean it's not necessary for the teacher to know the solution but the teacher will have a broad idea of what the solution is ah so they're walking they're needed. working towards kind of like a fixed solution then that even in problem-based learning it is still working towards a kind of a, a destination a fixed destination there's, there's a fixed destination to some extent but it's I, I, if i just drop it jump in here because um i, I was going to give some examples from coventry university which is i worked for the stem faculty there or faculty of engineering and computing and they introduced problem-based learning uh, for the first six weeks of the students. So the students would come in year, uh, year one, they would have a problem that was set for them to do that would be across the entire week. So it would be something like design a MIDI controller. Uh, and that was it. So as long as they came up with a MIDI controller that worked in their group, then that would be solving that particular problem. So the first week might be design, specking it out. The second week might be actually building it. And then they would go on through all the different steps. And then the final week in week six would be something like uh, marketing it. So it would be a marketing campaign, actually selling this thing because they'd have made it in weeks four or five or whatever, and then report and then reflecting on how they'd marketed it and that sort of stuff. So it was great for the students because it was hugely motivating. They were getting into, when they were looking at designing this thing, they were getting to third year level stuff because that's what they needed to do to make a really effective MIDI controller. But if they didn't get that far, then, again, uh, the way they'd solve that problem might be not as effective as somebody else, but they would get to that solving that problem in some particular way. The biggest issues with it were that there was only the resources and the time, because it massively uses resources and teachers' time and that sort of stuff and lab space and all those sorts of things was that you couldn't keep it up for the entire three years. And, um, but we, you know, people were sceptical about it at first, some of the lecturers about the switch. But once we started getting the feedback back, everybody just jumped on it and going, oh my God, this is the best thing ever. I mean, one of the, one of the criticisms I've seen of it actually is that 
it's sort of as a general acknowledgement that it is a very effective sort of tool for teaching but at the same time it is very very uh difficult to plan for and also mm-hmm. there's sort of a, a slight concern i say concern but just basically you you can cover a less broad spread of stuff essentially because of the time that you're expecting students to spend in the exploration as opposed to kind of you know your classical assimilative just bang through as much content as you can physically because you're giving people all this time to sort of break things apart and, and work things out you know you're putting more oh, i can hear a sad cat in the background yeah you're putting more of your eggs in into one basket yeah so there are criticisms of it and you know one of the criticisms as marcus said is that it's it's tough on teacher time and it's hard on resources unless you've you've really planned for it as an institution so maastricht university their entire curriculum is based around problem-based learning uh, across every department one of the problems is that people say well it, it gives students too much to be thinking about it the same time you know the, the phrase they use is cognitive load but what they're meaning is that you're having to deal with getting together as a team you're having to deal with collaborative learning you're having to deal with all the information uh, you're having to deal with a new situation and perhaps it's too much and it would actually be easier in the early stages of learning to have something which is a bit more assimilative to base things on so mm, and, and presumably give you the opportunities to sort of scaffold up towards that independence yeah. it's kind of like going back to blooms that you've got that basic level of remembering some of the facts having an idea of the overall lay of the land and then you can start building your own things once you have an idea of what the the landscape for that particular discipline is mm. before we move on to um, what, what kind of the, the defining characteristics of the application of problem-based learning are. In the run-up to the show, uh, you mentioned computational learning as well and kind of a distinction in there. Could you just give us like a, a quick summary of what, what computational learning is and sort of how it differs? It's called actually computational thinking rather than computational Damn! learning. <laughs> My ignorance on show once more. <laughs> and obviously, as, as you'd guess, it, it comes from computing, but it's actually a metacognitive set of skills which allow you to do problem solving in any situation and I think that is where it's perhaps more appropriate to Buffy than it is than is problem-based learning because with problem-based learning it's set for you and the person who sets you the problem knows that it is capable of solution so in, mm-hmm. in Mark's example with design a MIDI controller the lecturer knows that you can design a MIDI controller and knows you can do it in a group within within the given time frame. Uh, whereas the sort of things that you encounter in real life, you don't really know if they've got a solution. And certainly the things which Buffy encounters, she definitely doesn't know the solution. And in some cases, she'll struggle for an entire series uh, with, a, with a massive problem. Um, and perhaps not even at the end come up with a particularly good solution. But is there a different approach then to problem-based learning in its kind of uh, in, in attacking it? Yeah, so it, its steps are similar to those of problem-based learning, but also different. So they've got sort of computational names to them. So first of all, there's decomposition, uh, breaking a large problem down into smaller ones. Then you move into pattern recognition, and it's at this stage that you think about how these smaller problems relate to ones that have been solved in the past. Abstraction, 
uh, you think again about the problem and you identify and set aside things that are unimportant. You don't need to deal with those when you're solving this problem. Algorithm design. Algorithm perhaps sounds a bit like a scary word, but in fact, it means <laughs> identifying and refining the steps necessary to reach a solution. So in, in some ways, a, a cake recipe is an algorithm because it gives you the steps necessary to get to the cake. The next thing you do is you, you debug. So you refine those steps. So as you're working through them, you think, oh, this one hasn't worked. Let me let me think how I can change it. And sometimes you, you just uh, work through the, the um, computational thinking method to that point. But there's also an additional step, which is presenting a solution in a usable form. So that might be a temporary solution or it might be, this is it. I have now solved the problem. So I'm conscious we've not actually talked about what kind of the steps to go through yet for problem-based learning are then, just kind of as contrast. So we've we've yeah, had the ones, yeah. we've had the four, uh, the, well, the, the six steps. So decomposition, pattern recognition, abstraction, algorithm design, debug algorithm, and presenting solution in usable form yeah. uh, for, um, uh, for computational thinking. So what are the steps for um, problem-based learning and where, where are kind of the, the points of difference? Okay, so... The first thing you do with problem-based learning is you examine your case and you clarify your terms. Okay. And the next step? Okay. So the next step after you've looked at the general lie of the land is to identify the problem. I guess in this case, the problem is, can you design a a MIDI controller? The next step is analyse the problem. And I'd say analyse the problem is the one where you're looking at all the different aspects that you have to do. That, That is the decomposition. So I think The next two steps of problem-based learning, you'll probably find that those two go together as well. So step four is you draft an explanatory model, but that probably goes with step five, establish your learning goals. So I guess that's where with the MIDI controller, you're coming up with, this is how we're going to go about it. And then you're going to divvy it up to find out, well, you need to go and find out about this. You need to go and find out about that. Ideally, the learning goals from the educator's point of view would be in the initial design of what is the problem going to be. And so they'd pick MIDI controllers because it it contains a lot of the theory and also it's a nice practical. You can play music with it at the end and that's kind of cool as well. So from the educator's point of view, the learning goals would be at that stage before the whole thing gets designed. But I'm guessing by learning goals at this point, it would be the students identifying for themselves what they have to learn in order to achieve this output. You are leaving it to the students to scaffold their own learning to that extent. We need to learn about arrays or we need to learn about MIDI files or we need to learn about soldering or something like that in order to create this thing. And so that's the difference between learning goals in PBL and learning goals in generally what pedagogy is. And, and I think this, that's one of the places in problem-based learning where there's a role for the educator. So they're, they'd be checking, do the learning goals the students have identified align with what I was expecting they'd learn, mm. they'd learn, and also might be prompting them towards some learning goals they haven't spotted. You know, have you thought you might le- need to learn about arrays? Because mm. they've never heard of arrays. They're not going to know they need to learn about them. Yeah. Mm. Are you sure you know what a MIDI controller is? Well, that would have been covered right at the start, ideally, <laughs> at the very first step. Okay, and then the next step? Uh, so step six is you work individually to collect additional information. 
because problem-based learning is very much a, a team-based form of learning, something you do collaboratively. I suppose it's fairly obvious how that relates to, to what we've said yeah. before with MIDI controller. Work out what we need to do, and then you go off and find out what this is. You go off and find out what this is. That seems, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And then in the final step, uh, they apply what they've learnt, and they also discuss any additional information they found along the way. Okay, cool. So we've got, um, let's see, seven steps. So we've got examine the case and clarify terms, identify problems, analyze the problem, draft an explanatory model, establish learning goals, work individually to collect individual information, and then apply what you've learned and discuss any additional info that you're bringing back. Okay, yeah. so that's the model of um, problem-based learning in um, in practice. Let's take this forward to the next bit of the show then and see if we can use this to answer our question, which was, how does problem-based learning help Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Part two, the answer. Okay, so Rebecca, you've been giving this a lot of thought as to uh, how uh, problem-based learning helps Buffy Vampire Slayer, but there was also a hidden gotcha in the title because you'll notice we'll have said schools out forever, which I guess also leads us into ultimately computational thinking. So first of all, Rebecca, um, Buffy and problem-based learning, can you take us through um, the steps once more? One of the very early episodes where Buffy's friends, Willow and Xander, who call themselves the Scooby Gang, are are just finding out for the first time about vampires and demons. So they don't know very much at all. So in this case, uh, the problem, examining the case and clarifying the terms. So Buffy, who does know about vampires, is in the graveyard. She meets two very powerful vampires who get away from her, uh, called Luke and Darla. So she goes back to school. Um, She goes to the library, she talks to her watcher, Giles, and she also talks to these two new friends, Willow and Sander. And one of the things which makes Buffy different from all other Slayers and more successful than all other Slayers is that she works with friends, that she learns things collaboratively. And no other Slayer, back to the Stone Age, has ever done this. So this is a a really novel situation. they're explaining to two perfectly normal people, perfectly normal at that point, Willow and Sander, um, what vampires are and um, what is going on, that Sunnydale is really the hell mouth, that there are demons living under the school, all sorts of really scary, freaky things, all sorts of new knowledge. So mm-hmm. clarifying the terms, what is, what is going on here. Yeah. Then she goes on to identify the problem. And the specific problem in this case is people are being killed in the graveyard. Uh, She splits that down. She analyzes the problem. But one of the problems is there's vampires. Uh, One of the problems is vampires have superhuman strength. And one of the problems is they're hiding out in a lair and nobody knows where the vampire's lair is. So, So they can't stake the vampires because they don't know where they are. So obviously the learning goals then are well, we need to find the lair and we need to work out how to kill these super strong vampires. Then they go away. They work individually to collect additional information. Uh, Willow and Giles find out about this particular sort of vampire. Giles looks at books and, and old documents and parchments and things, whereas Willow goes on the internet and she finds a map of the sewers where, where she thinks the vampires are hanging out. And meanwhile, Sandra and Buffy go and explore on the ground or under the ground. They go down into the sewers and they start looking for the vampires. And then at the end, they apply and they discuss the additional information. So they do find the lair. 
They do deal with those particular vampires. They do deal with their superhuman strength. But they find out that it's much more complicated than they originally thought. And actually, those those vampires are part of a set who are trying to open the Hellmouth so de- demons will invade the Earth. So they've solved that particular problem, but that's just opened up a whole another can of worms, which they're going to have to deal with throughout the series. So where does um, Swin that? I picked up all the steps as we were going through, apart from draft an mm-hmm. explanatory model. So where does that fit into that example? Oh, sorry, yes. Uh, draft an explanatory model. Uh, if we find them, we can stake them. <laughs> my my only connection with Buffy is actually having watched the movie, and I know that's not entirely canon. The original movie script is, though, and in that, Buffy does it on her own, and in that, her watcher gets killed and the, the school gym gets burnt down, and maybe that's why she's so open to collaboration the next time round is because going it on your own, she knows, just doesn't work, really, and she had that expi- experience that, the previous school i think it's, is that a prequel it's sort of a prequel because when she arrives in sunnydale it's because she's been expelled from her old school for burning down the gym her mother is is sort of deeply worried by the fact that she's got this fire starter daughter who burnt down the gym of her last school but it was full of vampire i mean asbestos <laughs> great great line great line yes <laughs> yeah so in order to answer the overall question in this podcast about school being School's out forever. Out. When you get to the end of season three, the Scooby gang are coming up for their graduation day. There's story arcs all over the place, which uh, they're trying to, to bring together to deal with. Uh, but generally speaking, the big, big, big problem they're dealing is that the mayor of Sunnydale is about to transform into an all-powerful demon. And he's going to do that on their graduation day. And one element of this problem is that due to magic, the mayor can't be killed. So they've had a good go at killing him beforehand. You know, they've done loads of things to him, which would have killed any normal person. He's absolutely impervious to them. So they've got somebody they can't kill, but they've got to kill him. And they've got to stop him turning into a demon. Or they think they've got to stop him turning into a demon. Hmm. So, if we decompose that problem, uh, the mayor has to be killed. Oh, I'm sorry, um, we're back into um, oh, computational sorry, thinking I'm here. Thinking, yeah. I'm so, back into um, computational thinking, because I'm not going to take that through problem-based learning. I, will you allude to the reason why... Do you want to allude now, or do you want to allude kind of at the end? The reason that she's having to apply computational thinking here, rather than problem-based learning, is it's not a problem that they know that can be solved. That It's not that Giles the Watcher actually has the answer up his sleeve. It's not that there's a book they can turn to and it says, well, you deal with this problem in this way. As far as they know when they begin, there may not be a solution to it. Mm, and, there's there's and no they, set, set, um, shared set of learning goals between them and the knowledge. No, no, there's, there's, there's nothing out there. So they have to figure it out for themselves. So they need some way of thinking which is going to enable them to deal with this situation and hopefully come to a solution. So the first thing they need to do is they need to decompose the problem. And broadly speaking, bearing in mind there are so many story arcs going on, they know the mayor has to be killed, but they also know that the school class has to be saved. So you can't just sacrifice everybody there in order to kill the mayor, or you don't want to do that. So they've decomposed the problem. 
In terms of pattern recognition, this links with so many things they've done in the previous episodes over the last three series. So there's lots and lots of patterns that they've got about how they work together, about how they work with other people, about uh, what demons tend to do, how demons tend to think, um, how magic works in this particular version of the universe. So they've got all that in place. And then there's abstraction. There is what is unimportant. And the things which turn out to be unimportant are things which in other situations be hugely, hugely important. So uh, Buffy's relationship with Angel, which is a long-term passionate relationship that they've had over the last three series, that turns out to be irrelevant, something you can set aside. And in fact, the school itself, the entire school building is, is seen to be irrelevant. Then it's algorithm design. So they need to decide what everyone's going to do and when they're going to do it. And they've got so many people to orchestrate now because they've got the entire graduation class, as well as the Scooby gang, as, as well as everybody who's become involved in the Scooby gang through the three series. Then they go on. They've got a plan. They're not sure it'll work, but they're going to put it into practice because what choice do they have? Debugging means they need to react as things change. Um, so in a sub-story arc, Buffy is hospitalised, so they can't rely on her at crucial moments. They need to find ways around that. And then at the end, this is one of the cases where computational thinking really does have to present a solution. And what happens is the entire graduation class attack the mayor just as he's become a demon. And he's moved from this immortal human into a demon who can be killed. He may be as tall as a block of flats, but he can be killed. And so the entire graduation class attack him and kill him. And at the same time, Giles blows up the school. <laughs> and I don't think I've it. seen this episode. I need to watch this episode. Oh my God, it sounds amazing. It is a it is a brilliant. It's two. It's a double bill episode, and it is a it is a really amazing episode. Yes. <laughs> And also seems like it maps amazingly onto computational thinking. It does. It does. Well, once you've abstracted <laughs> all the other story arcs that are going on. So I think the big distinction for me between computational thinking and problem-based learning from the perspective of Buffy and her slaying of vampires is that computational thinking seemed from steps five to six, sort of debugging the algorithm and presenting solution, seems to be more action and doing focused. As opposed to problem-based learning, which seems to sort of, the model appears to kind of terminate a little bit more at sort of applying what you've learned and uh, working out what you need to learn. I, I think that's I, partly because problem-based learning is quite time-bounded. You know, even hmm. if you give it a week or two weeks in the classroom, you know it's got to fit into that period. Whereas computational thinking, it, it's coming out of computer programming. I mean, some computer programs are developed over months, years, decades uh, it's mm. an ongoing process and you don't just work through it step, step, step. Oh, I've got to the end. You can do that. But there's also that iterative element to it where you come up with new algorithms, you debug them, you work through. And I think that's why sometimes it's not given that final stage of presenting a solution in a usable form because you're in perpetual beta. You're, you're mm. just developing and developing. So it's kind of that action focus and ongoing action focus more than um, learning as an end goal. Yes. I, th I think that is why it is a, a way of thinking rather than described discreetly as a way of learning. 
it's it's something that you do throughout your life and that you could apply to any problem. Mark, any comments? It's that bounded solution thing. It's that you know, problem-based learning always has as presumption there is an answer. You can come up with a different variant variation on that answer, but we know there is something for you to get to by the end of this. But with computational thinking, as you said, it's it's always in perpetual beta, so it's kind of a lot more like life, really, because you never really get to any answers with reality. <laughs> and you know, anyone who's actually recruited, who's hired any developers to develop something, you know that it's always going to take at least four times longer than you expect to get to the answer. And that doesn't map so well with a bounded educational system whereby everyone has to graduate at the end of the three years or six years or whatever. Yeah, I I think that's the case that is difficult to apply in formal learning. I mean, um, the Scratch programming platform, which is used in schools and out of schools, tends to encourage computational thinking. So there are situations in which you can apply computational thinking to something which has got a known solution. So you can teach it as a metacognitive skill, but you wouldn't necessarily want to base a lot of lessons on it, I suppose. Mm. Okay, so do we think we've got all the bits we need then to answer our question? I think we have. Okay, so just to bring us back, our question was, school's out forever. How does problem-based learning help Buffy the Vampire Slayer? So what do we think? The comparison that Rebecca made right at the start was how difficult the Scooby gang find school, which is all about sitting in ranks and acquiring information, and how effective they then are most of the time, apart from when they die, uh, at problem-based learning because it's motivating, it keeps people focused, you can see it's authentic and so, yeah, so that and then computational thinking as a metacognitive skill for students to acquire is also a good thing. So we, we see this so often with formal education is that the valuable stuff that kids, usually it's at school level, are learning is the stuff they start learning once school's finished for the day and they go home and they learn how to program or they learn they've got a hobby where they're trying stuff out or whatever. And it's a matter of capturing some of that intrinsically motivated stuff that actually trying to solve things presents to students within a formal setting that, that, you know, on the whole, we're not that great at doing. Rebecca? Yeah, I I think there's two elements to this. I think one of the elements is that Buffy and her team realise that there's no one person who's got all the skills and the knowledge. And the thing that Buffy has to a really high degree, obviously apart from her superpowers, is that she knows how to tap into what different individuals know and what different individuals can do. And you often see Buffy in a situation where everything is thrown up into the air and she's got to react very quickly to a new problem. And people who you'd expect to take the lead and coordinate, so you know, parents, adults, head teachers, the mayor, aren't able to react as quickly as she can and to sort of apply computational thinking to it. So she's got this great metacognitive skill which helps her through and helps her to collaborate. I think also since since COVID-19, yeah, I'm, I'm working topical. on a topical, I'm working on a, an online course. There's, there's 50,000 teachers registered on this online course. 
And one of the things I see time and time again is they're saying, oh, my students are struggling and they're struggling because they're online. And in a lot of cases, why they're struggling is they don't have, they haven't been encouraged to develop the metacognitive skills uh, that they need for learning outside the classroom. So in the classroom, they've had the teacher to say, here is a problem. Here are the steps for solving it. This is what you need to do. Now do it. Here is a timetable for doing it. Here is the equipment for doing it. And suddenly they're thrown out into an environment where they don't necessarily have the equipment. They can't work to the school timetable. They've got to work it out for themselves and they really need those metacognitive strategies. So I think it's a, it's a very topical because school is out at the moment and we need to think about <laughs> how pedagogy supports that. That is wonderful. Sorry, that's just a really wonderful um, summary and bring round to current events. I wish I could uh, <laughs> write pithy bits like that. <laughs> okay, so if we had to summarise our answer then for how does problem-based learning help Buffy the Vampire Slayer, would it be fair to say that it helps her pull in and draw on her collaborative networks um, and helps her develop the metacognitive skills and strategies that she needs for killing the vampire of the week, but is ultimately helping her build towards um, computational thinking and practice and the destruction of mayoral demons? I would say that sums it up very well. (laughs) That's a relief. Uh, (laughs) Fabulous. Well, we've answered, not only have we answered our question, but we've also introduced you two for the price of one on pedagogies for this week. We've given you problem-based learning and computational thinking. Okay, so before we wrap the show up, do we have any practical tips uh, on problem-based learning or computational thinking uh, that people can apply in their own teaching? Okay, I'd say problem-based learning is probably quite a major change in strategy for people. And it's worth acknowledging that and not just going, well, that's something I'll do next week and try it out, Um, especially if you want to do it across an institution. I think it's something you need to prepare for the change. I mean, you might need to to set up a group to think through how this is is going to work. Um, You need to sketch out what your curriculum is going to be, think about your learning outcomes and why you want to achieve your learning outcomes in this way. You probably need to train people to act as these facilitators, these guides on the side, because it's it's a different role and it's it's quite a challenging role if you've not done it before. You've also got to bear in mind that students come to you with with a model of how education works and they're used to the idea that the teacher will tell them stuff and they will learn the stuff. So you've also got to introduce the students to it and perhaps in some cases persuade them of why it's going to work. And sort of like the pedagogy think, bear. Exactly, exactly. Rather than, because quite, you know, you don't often lay your pedagogy bear. And so students tend to assume that how they've always done it is the only way of doing it. And I think you quite often see that with government interpretations of how education works. <laughs> you know, this is how I did it at school. So this is how everybody should do it at school. So. You also need to make sure that the assessment fits because assessing things which people have done in groups is different to assessing how people have done things individually. And you need to evaluate it. You don't need to assume that you've got it right first time, have feedback from the students and you know, develop it as you go on because that makes it interesting for you and it makes it interesting for the students. Hmm. And Mark? The thing about problem-based learning is it's useful as another tool in your toolbox that you need some kind of grounding in a subject 
I think most people, students would before they feel ready to address problems within it. And so you don't want to just jump in there with a bunch of problem-based learning. It's lay some of the groundwork, have a problem at some point to bring all of those different aspects together and to drive the students to you know, reach further and have some autonomy in their learning and develop some of those additional skills, but mix it with some more traditional learning because one, that helps scaffold it. And secondly, it makes the whole thing less of a shock to the system for students that haven't really encountered problem-based learning before. So you see you're scaffolding up to your problem-based learning uh, with traditional learning and kind of highlighting how it works and the importance of it with a bit of good old transparent pedagogy, Mm -hmm. which I I get to ring the transparent pedagogy bell every time I say it. Um, And how about computational thinking? Now, I'm conscious that this is a sort of possibly as much a methodology as it is a bit of pedagogy. But how would you say, um, how would you um, suggest that people could use it in their own teaching? I think with computational thinking, it is something about foregrounding metacognitive skills. Because just as we don't normally make our pedagogy transparent, we don't normally make transparent the ways that students approach problems and try to solve them. You talk about people saying, oh, you know, I'm just naturally better at doing this. Well, it's not really you're naturally better. At some point, you've acquired a strategy that works and these Mm. strategies can be taught. And I think one of the things as a teacher is thinking about how you can foreground metacognitive strategies to students and say, but this here is a structure. Try working through this structure. So computational thinking, you can do in quite small ways. You can apply it to something like planning a trip or working out how you're going to prepare for a birthday party. It doesn't need to be huge projects of earth shattering significance. You don't need to be saving the world from the demons. (laughs) You can be doing something very small in your own life. And it is something that you could work through in a lesson or a couple of lessons, just saying, look, and now we're doing this and now we're doing that. That's a structure that people can apply throughout their lives once they've got it and once they're aware they've got it. Yeah. So so problem-based learning is something that you um, exist within the, uh, the teacher's toolbox and um, computational thinking is something you can put in your student's toolbox for the rest of their lives. Yes, exactly. Fantabulous. Um, Okay, so I think we've comprehensively answered our question. We've done you two for the price of one on the pedagogies. Uh, We've given you practical tips for your own teaching. Uh, Let's wrap the show up. So thank you very much for listening. You can subscribe to us on all of your favourite apps, feeds, iTunes, and at our website, pedagodzilla.com. You can also get in touch with us via Twitters. Uh, I'm at pedagodzilla. And Mark? I'm at Mark Childs. And Rebecca? I'm at Rebecca F. And at Rebecca F is in uh, in Leet Speaks. We'll be putting a link to that in, in the episode notes. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the episode and we'll see you next time on Pedagodzilla. Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye.